The tree of life is Jesus. The tree of life is, um, is knowing Jesus and walking with Jesus and talking with Jesus and being filled by Jesus' spirit and doing life uh, with Jesus. I think that's what the tree of life is. He wants us to choose innocence and he wants us to choose life and he wants us to choose mercy and he wants us to choose joy and he wants us to let him be God and we're just to be his people. And that sounds so stinking simple. And yet it's so hard. And here's the thing, when you get into the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you eat of it, the problem is it doesn't kill you instantly. This poison goes inside of you and it begins to work slowly. God invites us into situations where things happen to us. Instead of getting into the knowledge of good and evil, God invites us to let those things go through Jesus. Well, good morning, Jubilee. How we doing? Okay, eight people. All right, that's okay. Coffee will kick in soon. Uh, my name's John Leach, and uh, just kidding. Uh, my name's Jake Wood. I get the pleasure to be with you guys this morning. Want to welcome, especially if you're a first-time guest, want to welcome you. Also want to welcome our uh, people online, all our campuses, too. Uh, maybe you can help me out today. Uh, this weekend's a little special because exactly one year ago from this weekend, we launched our Parker campus. And so can we just give them a little what's up and let them know we love them? Come on. God's doing some great things in there. All right, so I hope you know you're in church today, right? Are you ready for this? I got a lot I want to get to, and I'm really antsy to get to it. So I'm going to pray, and we're just going to jump in the deep end. Sound good? All right, two people. That's okay. Let's pray. God, um, we take this moment right now, and we just pause. Um, we're wired to be creatures of habit, and sometimes coming to church can be easy to just become white noise. And uh, this morning, God, I pray that that wouldn't be the case. More importantly, God, I ask for your presence to be here. I could be up here and I could spit all the fancy words I know, God, but if your presence isn't here, it's a waste of time. And so we just pause and just say, God, you take the lead here and I'll step back. In whatever direction you want to go, Holy Spirit, we want to go in that direction because when we leave this place, God, we don't want to just leave like we were. We want to be changed. We want to encounter the true God. So breathe life into this place this morning. In your name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Uh, me and my wife, we'd done ministry on the East Coast for nine years before we came back home to Colorado. And one of my favorite things about churches on the East Coast uh, or in the Bible Belt are church signs. Anyone know what I'm talking about? If you don't know, we don't see them a lot here in Colorado, but if you go to the Bible Belt or the East Coast, you'll see, you know, in front of the church will be a sign. It'll have their church name on it. And then below it, there's this kind of marquee area where they can put like their vision, their mission statement. Sometimes it's a verse they'll put up there or, you know, a catchy little phrase like knee mail or something. You know what I'm talking about? I'm a huge fan of church signs. I have friends from all over that send me pictures. And I just thought, I have to show you guys this uh, because uh, my friend captured this on, a, on his phone and sent them to me. And uh, the, the quality is not great. Okay, so just be warned. 
But man, I think you're going to find uh, some, some laughter in this. So there's a Catholic church that posts a sign, and this is the sign. It says, all dogs go to heaven. Okay, I don't know what, what was going on. Maybe they were just wanting, maybe they were talking about animals. I don't know. The only problem was across the street is a Presbyterian church, and they weren't too happy about this. So the next week, the Presbyterian church posted this on their church. Only humans go to heaven. Read the Bible. <laughs> so the Catholic Church wasn't happy with that. And the next week they posted this. God loves all his creations, dogs included. <laughs> and the Presbyterian Church wasn't happy. So the next week they posted this. Dogs don't have souls. This is not open for debate. <laughs> So the Catholic Church decided to post something back, and they wrote, Catholic dogs go to heaven, Presbyterian dogs can talk to their pastor. (laughs) So the Presbyterian Church decided to respond, converting to Catholicism does not magically grant your dog a soul. So the Catholic Church responded back and said, free dog, free dog souls with conversions. <laughs> and so the Presbyterian one last time decided to respond, dogs are animals. There aren't any rocks in heaven either. And the Catholic Church responded, all rocks go to heaven. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> Maybe we should get a church song going, right? <laughs> Now, Jesus never had a church building, okay? He most definitely didn't have a church sign. But he did have a mission statement. He did have a purpose. And he actually tells us in the text exactly what his purpose is. And one day I'm reading this, and I gotta tell you, it stopped me in my tracks because it wasn't necessarily what I thought it was. And here's what I wanna do. I wanna, how many played Mad Libs growing up? Yeah, we go on trips, yeah. You fill in the blanks and then you get something funny. Well, I'm gonna give you part of the scripture. I'm gonna leave blank some of it. And I'm not gonna tell you the reference because I know some of you are gonna look it up, all right, and see what he actually said. But I wanna give you part of this purpose, this mission statement that Jesus gives us. And I want you just off the top of your head to tell me what you think he says here. So here, here it is in the blank words. This is Jesus saying this. I must blank, for I was sent for this purpose. Now, what would you say off the top of your head? Yeah, maybe you say something like bring life, right? Or uh, maybe it's something like die on the cross for our sins, right? What if I told you that wasn't it? In fact, what if I told you that Jesus dying on the cross and being raised from the dead for your sins is only a fraction of what his purpose was. Would you be interested? Would you, like me, want to know a little more? Okay, three people. That's okay. We're waiting for the Mountain Dew to come. It'll be here any minute, okay? Let's jump into this. Here's what I want to do. I want to take you from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation in roughly the time of, say, a Simpsons episode. Are you ready for this? Let's go for a ride. Grab your Bibles if you have it. We're going to open up to the book of Genesis, chapter 1, 
the beginning of it all. Verse one, this is what we're told. In the beginning, who? God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And what? Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, if you know your Jewish culture, you know anytime they mention the, 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 the word water, you know that that represents chaos, okay? Brokenness, emptiness. In fact, in Jesus' day, many people were scared of large bodies of waters because they felt evil spirits rested in those. And so here, early on in the text, the very beginning, we have this picture of chaos, Void, darkness, and the Spirit of God is just hovering right over it. Like a leopard about to pounce, like, like an artist before a blank canvas, like a, like a potter before his potter's wheel. And then like this, God goes to work and he jumps into the chaos, into the darkness and the void, and he begins to create and he builds light, and he creates land, and he creates seed and animal and coffee. <laughs> you know it was there somewhere, like in the first day, right? Amen. <laughs> and, and, and it was all good. And the image that we have is like a, a potter at his potter's wheel, stand, like sitting and creating and bending and making and in this rhythm God has, he steps into it and goes to work, steps back and goes, it is good. And then he steps back in and he forms and he creates and he says, it is good, it is good, it is good. There was no evil, there was no darkness, there was no terrorism, there was no uh, hurt or pain. It was all good. In fact, there's a Hebrew word we use to describe this. It's the word shalom. Who here knows what the word shalom translates to? Peace. A lot of times we translate it as peace, but it's so much more than that. It, it's wholeness. It's, it, it's well-being. It's, listen to this. Everything as God intended it to be. And in the middle of it all, there was a garden. And in that garden, there were two trees, the tree of life and the tree of death. You know what's interesting is God never puts any limits on the tree of life, but he does say, I don't want you to touch the tree of death. A lot of people ask me as a pastor, number one question by far, why does God create pain and suffering? And my answer is simple, he didn't. In the beginning, in the garden, it was good. And he didn't stop there. He went on to create some of his best work here in verses 26 here. Check this out. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. Now, it's easy to read this and, and read it for, at face value and say, oh, okay, so I guess we look like God, right? And some of you, I can see, you're like, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's me. <laughs> that's not what it means, okay? It actually means this, that, that we are image bearers of God. 
And when God created you, and when he created me, and when he created Adam and Eve, he created us originally in four perfect relationships. And there was no brokenness to it. There was, it was only wholeness, and it was good. And the first relationship he created us in was our relationship with the Father, with the creator himself. And we know it was good because in Genesis it tells us that God walked in the garden and in the cool of the day. How cool would that be? Think about that. God just strolling through the garden. What's up, God? Not much. Just chilling. <laughs> it was a perfect relationship that we started with. The second relationship that God gave us in perfect harmony was our relationship with ourselves. There was no verbiage then of mental health. There was no depression or shame or guilt. We were created in perfect harmony that way with ourselves. And the other relationship, thirdly, is our relationship with others. Adam was with Eve, and it says they were both naked and felt no shame. Think about that. No shame whatsoever. Nothing was being hidden from each other. Everything was out in the open. There was a complete honesty between the two. The relationship was incredible. To live in that kind of openness and vulnerability, is, it's hard to to do that, isn't it? And lastly, God created us in perfect harmony with our relationship with creation itself. There were no earthquakes. There was no floods and hurricanes. All we had was fruit that came out. And we enjoyed the benefits of that. And God gets near the end, and it says this in Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the what? Seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, if you study numbers in the text, you quickly realize that numbers have significance. Numbers have deeper meaning. Rabbis, they, they would wear their prayer shawls, and there were knots, if you've ever noticed that. There are knots that are tied, and those knots, there are a certain amount on there to represent the laws that God gave the early people. And we know easily, whether you come to church or not, more than likely, you know the number seven represents what? God, right? Perfection, completeness, we've, we've heard it described as. What day did God finish everything? The seventh day. What's the seventh day of the week? It's the end of the week, isn't it? It's bringing, it's complete, it's closed. Anyone know what the number eight means? Number eight means new beginnings or, or everything has changed, Think about the eighth day of the week, the first day of the week. What? Monday, we start over. It's brand new. It's a new week. Everything has changed, as John talked about earlier. And it was all good. And in the center of it was a beautiful garden, and all we experienced was life in it. But it doesn't stay that way, does it? Because a snake comes and a fruit is eaten, the tree of death. And in one moment, 
everything changes. Death and hurt and pain was not part of the human experience. But for the first time in history, sickness and hurt and pain and disease, shame, guilt, sin became part of the regular human experience. And the worst part of it all, church, listen, the worst part of it all was those once perfect relationships that God created us in were now fractured and broken. And I can bet you today, if I sat down with each one of you in this place, you could tell me a story of how a relationship with someone or a relationship with yourself or a struggle with depression or a struggle with your relationship with God has affected your life. And Genesis tells us about how this affects us. In chapter three here, it says this, and they, being Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, what? Where are you? Now, is God asking a geographical question here? No, right? He's not wanting to look up Google Earth and like, Adam, where are you? Okay, it's not about that. But what this is showing is that something in the relationship between Adam and God has now changed. It's no longer the way it was. Where are you, Adam? Where are you today? God responds and or Adam and says, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Do you notice a trend of words there? I, 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 I. At the root of all sin, church, is pride and selfishness. And what this tells us is that the relationship now between ourselves is now fractured. Because it's about me. It's about me and I. Something has shifted. Something is different. He goes on. He says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? And the man responds, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. What is this? It's the first instance of the blame game, isn't it? Right? Husbands, wives nudging each other. Yeah, She did it. It was her, the woman you gave me. What is this text telling us? It's saying the relationship now we have with others is broken. Something has shifted. There's a fracture now and there's no longer that perfect harmony. She did it. He did it. And just a couple verses later, we see God says, cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Romans chapter eight says this, that for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Our relationship with creation now is fractured and now we have a tough relationship with it. How often do we turn the news on even nowadays and go, another hurricane? Another natural disaster. The earth, the creation is croning. Something has changed. It's no longer the way it was intended to be. 
Now, the good news is this, church. God didn't leave us in the mess. Thank God I'm not God. (laughs) Because if that was me, and I put all that hard work into this creation, and they turned their back on me like that, I'm like, forget you, okay? You do your thing, I'll go do my thing. But God doesn't do that. In fact, he goes to work doing what the Hebrews call, get this, tikkun olam. Say that with me, tikkun olam. Tikkun olam means this. It's the restoration of all things. (laughs) Is that cool or what? And God goes back to work in bringing about this in his creation. And so from Genesis through the Old Testament, we have the yo-yo effect, right? We have constant stories of people, kings and queens, who have run after God and then turned their back on God, and run after God and then turn their back on God, and disobey and then follow. Yes, God, we will obey. Up and down and up and down. The narrative goes throughout all the Old Testament until we get to the New Testament. And in the New Testament, we start with what we call the Gospels. And the Gospels are what? They're the records of Jesus Christ. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, the book of John was written by a guy by the name of? (laughs) Yeah, you're like, I'm not sure about this. John, yes, it was written by the disciple whose name was John. Interestingly enough, John, we believe when he was living with Jesus, most historians will tell you he was probably around the age of 12 at the time. By the time John sits down to write the book of John, uh, it's around 85 to maybe 95 AD. Um, John's nickname at the time was the one whom Jesus loved. Now, wouldn't that be a cool nickname? Like, don't forget, don't forget my name, Peter, okay? (laughs) I'm the one that Jesus loves, (laughs) When John sat down to write the book of John, by the time he had done that, there were three accounts already written about Jesus. Three accounts of all the facts. There was Matthew, Mark, Luke, and now John. So when John finally sat down to write his account of it, he had license to really do whatever message he wanted. And I wonder what John would feel is pressing. I wonder what theme John wants to get across to us that might speak into this situation this morning. Would you be curious? Then let's go for a ride. Let's see where John leads us. Let's start in John chapter 2, verse 6. We're told this story. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. Now, how many of you know this story, right? It's when Jesus turns the water into into wine. Now, you may say, what's the big deal about turning water to the wine? Why would Jesus, why would this have to be a miracle? Like, it just seems like something simple. Like, you know, I I prefer, you know, a a Pepsi now. Okay, thanks, God. There's a little more to that. You see, if you had a wedding and you had wine, and at the very early part of the wedding, you ran out of wine, it was embarrassing, It said your family couldn't afford any more wine. It it said you didn't plan well enough. It wasn't just a reflection of the bride and groom. It was a a reflection on all the family. There was much shame that came with this. And Jesus, seeing this brokenness, this 
shame and, and sensing this, much like we saw the early part of creation, he hovers over the chaos and steps into it. And he says, fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, you've kept the good wine until now. This is what? The first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. All right, let's go a couple chapters over to the right to see another story of Jesus. It's found in chapter four, and it says this. So he came again to Canaan and Galilee, where he had made the water into wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him, and he asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Stop there. Is there brokenness involved here? Is there hurt? Is there the tree of death involved? Yes, we see God, Jesus himself, hovering close to this situation. And so Jesus said to him, unless you see the signs and wonders, you will not believe. And so the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the what? Seventh hour, interesting. The fever left him and the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the what? The what? The second sign. What is John trying to tell us here? What instructions is he giving us as we read this? Yeah, these signs, these miracles that Jesus is doing, um, you should probably start counting. Yeah, there might be something involved there. So let's do it. We'll take the bait, John. Where is this going? What are you trying to tell us? All right, so we have how many? You got to help me because I'm really bad at math. Okay, how many signs so far? Two, right? Go ahead and bring that up. The water to wine, Jesus heals the official son. If you go a couple chapters over to the next one, John chapter five, we see the healing at the pool. Pastor John talked about this a couple weeks ago, talking about healing, right? The lame man that was by the pool for years, suffering, could never walk. Jesus walks up to him in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of the, of the, the void and the hurt. What does he do? Take your mat, get up and walk. <laughs> wow, incredible. And he does. All right, so how many is that total? Three. Oh, you guys are so good at math here. All right, next one was the feeding of the 5,000, John chapter 6. You remember this story? 5,000 people, they're getting hungry. There's a physical need there. Uh, we record 5,000 in the Bible. We believe that was just the count of the men, though. We believe it was actually closer to like 15,000. So 15,000 people are hungry. Jesus breaks the bread. He breaks the fish. And what happens? It's multiplied, and they eat, and they eat. In fact, they eat so much, they have leftovers. Now, question, church. These signs that Jesus is doing, is he 
answering an ultimate call? Is he ultimately bringing fulfillment and complete healing? Maybe, maybe not. Think about this. They got fed, they filled their bellies, but what happened later that day probably? They got hungry, right? (laughs) Right? Right? I mean, you have the water into wine, but what happened eventually at some point? The wine ran out, right? There was no ultimate complete fulfillment, but Jesus still steps in and creates a temporary, if you will, band-aid of wholeness to each situation. Huh. All right, a couple chapters over, we go to chapter 6, verse 16, is the story of Jesus walking on the water. Do you remember this? The disciples are out. There's a storm going on. Remember, body of water, it represents chaos, right? Especially in a storm. They see Jesus in the distance. They think it's a ghost. They freak out. Jesus says, it's me. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm okay now then. And he gets in the boat, and they, they, instantly they're on land. Jesus steps into the chaos there and provides that temporary healing, if you will, a remedy to the chaos and the brokenness. Next, or how many is this so far? Help me out. So you're like, carry the one, two, five, okay? So five, this is our sixth one, right? John chapter nine is the healing, the blind guy with spit. Do you remember this story? Right, Jesus, there's a blind guy, And he spits in the dirt and makes mud and puts it on his eyes and then sends him out to a body of water. I was thinking about the story this week. This is, do you know how much spit you would have to have to make mud? I mean, that's not just like one, you know, that's like five minutes of just awkward. (laughs) And meantime, the blind guy's like, what's happening, guys? Guys, what's going on? You don't want to know, bro. Whatever he's going to do with this, it can't be good, okay? <laughs> it's just so strange, man. And, and, and he, he, he's, he, the guy's already humiliated. He's already blind, right? And he calls attention to it by wiping the spit mud all over his face. And he's not healed in that moment. He actually is told to go down to the body of water that's translated scent, which is an interesting study, by the way. And then it's there where he wipes off his eyes and instantaneously he can what? He can see. Now at some point, this man gets old and eventually dies. His, his complete healing is not completely possible, just like all of these. It's an instantaneous kind of band-aid that Jesus steps into the chaos to provide. Can there be more? All right, so one, two, three, four, five, six, with the seventh sign, real quick, what do you think number seven is? The resurrection, right? That's what I would have guessed. As I'm going through this, I'm like, yeah, okay, the seventh, number of perfection. This is the number of God. We're gonna see God come out, the resurrection miracle, right? This is the, no, it's not. But it is a good story. It's found later in John chapter 11. It's when Jesus brings Lazarus back to life. Do you remember this story? Lazarus is, dead for four days. Now, what's the significance of four? In those days, they didn't have medical doctors like we do that could pronounce someone dead. And, and it was actually very common for someone to, you know, either fall asleep or go into a coma. And then, you know, you put them in, in a tomb. And then, you know, the next day you go there and, and there's Aunt Martha, you know, like, oh, she's okay. 
It was more common than you would think. And so there were two ways that you could tell if someone was not just dead, but they were dead, dead. <laughs> All right. And the first one was you were declared by a professional, someone like a Roman centurion, right? A, a soldier trained in the art of killing. And they could declare you dead. But if you didn't happen to have a Roman soldier around, okay, then you would do what more commonly was known was you waited till the fourth day because it was believed by the third day your body couldn't survive without water. And so by the fourth day, you weren't just dead, you were dead, dead. And what was Lazarus? Day four. He was dead, dead. Right? There's no question that he was con. In fact, Jesus specifically waits probably for this. Four days he's in the grave and Jesus comes in. People are weeping. And he calls into the tomb, into the grave, and he says, Lazarus, and just with his words, come back. Whew. Lazarus walks out of the grave. How incredible is this? Now, what eventually happens to Lazarus? <laughs> At some point in his life, he dies, right? But Jesus sees the chaos in the moment the hurt and the pain and the tree of death, and he steps in to do what he does best. All right, what's the next one? How many is that? Seven. This is the eighth sign. Before I show you this, I gotta show you one more thing. Jesus is about to go to the cross, and all four gospels give us an account of when Jesus, right before he goes, he goes to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember this? Gethsemane translates to agony. This is where he goes to pray, sweats blood, right? This is where he pleads, God, if you could take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. The disciples are, are there. They fall asleep. Judas betrays him. This, the Roman soldiers come and take him. All four gospels give an account of this, and they say it this way. Check this out. See if you notice anything. In Luke, he says it this way. And he, being Jesus, came out and went as was his custom to the what? The Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. So he gives a specific location. He says it's the Mount of Olives that, that Jesus goes to, um, which was kind of a broad definition of it, but it was still pretty specific. Check out the next gospel, what the writer says. In Mark, it says, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. So, so Luke, Mark is giving us a little bit more of a specific place. He's saying it's Gethsemane that, that Jesus goes to. And check this out. Matthew says, then Jesus went to them to a place called what? Gethsemane. So, so they're all giving a specific place. But John does something a little different. And see what John tells us. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a what? A garden. Interesting. Interesting. Why would John use the term garden? All right. The eighth sign. <laughs> this is so cool. You're going to love this. Blew my mind when I, when I came across this. Jesus is dead in the, in the tomb, okay, for three days. Is Jesus dead or is he dead, dead? He's dead, dead. Why do we know? Because the Roman soldier declared that he was dead, all right? And this is where the story picks up in John chapter 20, verse 1. It says, now on the what? The first day of the week. Now stop there. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Why doesn't he say the third day? Like it, he says the first day of the week. The first day of the week, what number is that? 
Number eight. Okay. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Who is he talking about there? John, right? The one writing this. (laughs) And he says this, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Don't you love the Bible, man? What's John? Jesus like, and by the way, Peter, just to remind you, I got there first, okay? The one whom Jesus loved. Next one. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead church. You have to understand this. If you get anything from this morning, it's this. Jesus Christ is the only person in the history of the world that has been resurrected from the dead. Now I know you're going, wait a minute. We just talked about Lazarus. He came back from the dead. Yes, Lazarus did come back from the dead. But what happened later in his life? He died. Jesus came and has been the only person that was resurrected from the grave and still lives today. He punched death in the face and said the tree of death is no longer valid. Why is this important? Because something bigger is happening, John's saying. And you have to get this. Jesus took death and nullified its full consequences. So no longer when Jesus steps into the chaos is it just a temporary band-aid, but it's something much, much more. If that don't give you goosebumps, then you might be dead. (laughs) All right, this is so cool. You're gonna love this. The story goes on. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had laid, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. What? (laughs) wait, what? She turns around, there's Jesus, who she knows very well, but she doesn't notice that it's actually Jesus. John, what are you doing here? I don't understand this. Jesus then says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And check this out, you gotta get this. Supposing him to be the, the gardener. What? She said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus says to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means the teacher. John, 
What are you trying to say here? All right, let's put it together, right? We've got the first day of the week, right? It's the number eight. It is the eighth sign that John records that he wants us to track. What does the number eight mean? New beginnings. It means everything has changed. Am I right? The garden, the garden, garden, garden. Where have we first heard the garden? The Garden of Eden, the tree of life, when everything was as it should be, as God created it to to be. John, what are you saying? He's saying this, guys, listen to this. If you think that Jesus dying on the cross and being raised from the dead was just for the forgiveness of your sins, you're missing half the story here. John's saying there's a much bigger thing that's happening, and if you miss it, you're only getting half of it. Jesus died and was resurrected ultimately for the restoration of all things, tikkun olam, which, which includes the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus came back because he said, I'm not happy with the situation and I'm working towards tikkun olam. I want you to have shalom again. I want you to have everything as it was supposed to be in perfect harmony. And so your relationship with the Father by Jesus dying on the cross, it brought us back to the Father. And God wants to begin to restore other things like your relationship with yourself. He wants to store relationships with others. And he wants to restore a relationship with creation itself. If you walk away from church and Easter Sunday, and you think it was just for your forgive, to forgive your sins. Listen, that's, an, that's huge. That's a big deal. But you're missing that God is not done yet. God wants to see restoration in your family. He wants to see him with your coworkers. He wants to see it in the world you're in. It's always been about shalom. It's always been tikkun olam to bring about and restore you back to his creation. That's why in Luke chapter four, when Jesus gives us his mission statement, when he tells us his purpose, he gives it this way and he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. What is the good news of the kingdom of God? It's shalom, man. It's tikkun olam. It's the tree of life for you. And for your, and, and get this, get this. Church, you gotta understand this part. If it, was, if it was just you, if it was just you, he would have done the same thing over again. If there was no one else on this earth and it was just you as a person, he would have done the same thing over again because it's about the kingdom of heaven. It's about becoming whole again. It's about being everything as it should have been. Tikkun Olam. Now, on my best day, there's no way I could glue this thing back together. Um, But I have the next best thing. It's a new bot. God doesn't want to just take your broken pieces and finagle them. He wants to make you new. And he's doing something new in your life. Don't let it stop short and say, well, because this is the mentality. We go, okay, Jesus saved me from my sins. I'm going to heaven. All right, that's cool. I can just sit back and enjoy the ride. And Jesus is like, I don't want that for you. I want you now to join me in the restoration of all things. I want you to see the brokenness around you and start injecting that tree of life into that situation. 
You can be that when we join God together. Last but not least, Revelations chapter 21. You hear this, church. Verse 3 says this. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne, Jesus Christ, says this to you today. Behold, I am making all things new. Tikkun olam. The restoration of all things. Let's pray. Father, I know in a room this size, and across all of our campuses that there are people here who have been affected by the tree of death and feel the pain of that and the sting, maybe on a daily basis. Maybe there's some even in this room struggling with depression, suicidal thoughts. God, right now you want, to hear, you want, you want them to hear you say that he's not done. The gardener has not left the building He's still at work, and he wants to restore all things. With everyone's head bowed and eyes closed, I want to ask you a question. It's a simple question. I don't know your church background. I don't know, you know what you think about God, but I want to ask you this question. Do you want to know Jesus? Church, 100 years from now, the only thing that's going to matter, it's not your bank account, it's not your car you drive, the education or the career you build. A hundred years from now, the only thing that's going to matter is the answer to that question. Do you know Jesus? And the first step that God does in restoring us back to the way it was, was restoring our relationship and making it possible to come back to God. So if you're here this morning, I don't want to embarrass you or do anything crazy. I just want to pray for you. If that's you, would you just say, yeah. Raise your hand. Say, that's me, Jake. I want Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Across all our campuses. Just really, yeah, lots of lives. Lots of lives saying yes to Jesus today. And the Bible says that when we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts, then we'll be saved. In just a moment, we're gonna pray together a prayer that most of us have prayed before together as a church. And there's no magic to the prayer itself, but it's the heart behind it. So if you raised your hand, I just want you to pray it with all sincerity to your creator. Let's pray together as a church. Father God, I come to you today in need of you. I need a savior. And I love that you came after me. I wanna go after you. So I turn from my sin and I turn to the cross. Thank you for saving me. Teach me to walk in this life. I need you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Come on, let's give those people a hand that made a decision today. Now, would you stand with me? If you did raise your hand directly after the service, if you make your way to the Start Here Center, we got a Bible we want to put in your hands and a book that might help you answer some questions.
For the rest of us here, as we close with this worship song, guys, I want you to ask one question. What is my role in bringing tikkun olam? What is my role to bring the restoration of all things? Church, we've been preaching Jesus for the last 2,000 years. It's time we start preaching his message. He wants to restore all things, and he wants to use you, and he wants to use me to do it. So let's worship and reflect on that this morning. Amen. Come on.